Hi, welcome to Bulletproof Women. I'm your host, Gwen. Join me as I curate the real-life experiences of some of the strongest women I've met, heard of, or read about. For some reason, I knew something was wrong with my body. I just didn't think it was cancer. When I first realized it, after falling in love with a woman for the first time, it was an amazing feeling. I was very, very depressed. I went through a severe depression for about a year. This podcast aims to bring the rich stories and experiences of everyday women among us, the unsung heroines from our lives, past, present, and future. Don't let cancer bring you down. Stay on top and fight it. And that's what I did. I fought it every step of the way. I felt privileged, really, to learn that I have a totally different perspective of this world that we live in. Thank God, with my faith and the help of the community, I didn't get consumed for more than a year. Strong decision. Whatever decision you strong. One decision Listen for fun or listen to learn. Hear what they have to share with everyone or tell us a story yourself. What in life has made us bulletproof? Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bulletproof Women. I'm your host Gwen. Once again, I need to apologize for the very, very, very long break between my episodes. This entire pandemic and all of 2020 and 2021 really took its toll on me. But we've got just a few weeks to go. It's almost the end of November 2021. And finally, we're beginning to see the light at the end of this dark tunnel. So that being said, we've still got about five weeks of this year left. So let's stay positive. I'm definitely hoping for a better 2022 and hoping that it gives us a much more and much more normal future from then on. Now, getting back to my podcast episode. A quick note before we move forward. This episode was recorded way back in Feb earlier this year. And in line with my earlier apology, I wasn't able to get to editing and posting this up until now. And this particular episode is something a little different from the usual stories I bring to this platform. Especially today, being November 25th, 2021, it's White Ribbon Awareness Day and it could not be a better time to release this episode. In all the previous episodes, I've managed to bring the stories of women who have been through some sort of life-changing experience. These experiences had taught them valuable lessons and changed them at their very core, but the very essence of their survival is something so ingrained and personal to these women that it may be difficult for us, the listeners, to ever see ourselves overcome things the way they do. Sometimes, It's hard to convince ourselves that, if they can do it, I can do it. Sometimes the very fact and thought that that's them and not me makes it impossible for me to do it. This drowning well of logic does not have to exist, though. My definition of Thriver is a happy, self-confident and productive individual who believes she has a prosperous life ahead of her. She believes in herself and her future so much that she will not return to an abusive relationship or suffer the consequences of a sexual assault. 
She speaks knowledgeably and confidently about her experiences, and she's not stuck in her anger or need for revenge. Living well is her best revenge. That was a little snippet from this episode, where I'd like to introduce today's guest. She is someone who I believe will be able to share more than just a life-altering experience, but the very steps we can take to pull ourselves through it. Her proven and time-tested road to recovery can help serve as the stepladder out of that never-ending well. Today's guest is the wonderful Susan O'Million. A woman who has worn and continues to wear many hats over her career, Susan is an author, motivational speaker, attorney and nationally recognized expert in her work to end violence against women for the past four decades. She holds a law degree from Wayne State University in Detroit and a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Journalism from the University of Michigan. Susan has written and published several books on sex discrimination law, and details of her work has appeared in newspapers and journals, including Moving Beyond Abuse in Our Lives and in The Voice, The Journey of the Battered Women's Movement, published by the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Articles about Susan and her groundbreaking work have also appeared in publications in her home state of Connecticut in the United States, such as The Connecticut Law Tribune, and New Britain Herald. As an editor and writing coach of both fiction and non-fiction memoir writing, Susan oversees her own production company, Butterfly Bliss Productions LLC, which is the publisher of her books. Hi Susan, happy new year 2021. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. It's a good winter day here. Yeah, same here. It's a good winter weekend, actually, for us. I know it's been quite a dramatic start to the new year for you guys over there. I hope you and your family are safe and everyone's doing well. Yes, we're doing very very well. In fact, I have a few people in my family who've got vaccinated, so it's very excited. (laughs) That is excellent news. Excellent. I'm very happy to hear that for you all. Before we begin, I want to thank you, first of all, for taking the time to be a guest on my podcast and for being so patient with me and bearing with me to schedule this recording session since we connected, I think, in October or November. But you've been very patient and thank you very, very much. It was very important for me to get someone like you to speak on my show. The main reason is because up until now, most of the, pretty much all the other women who I've interviewed, they were close friends of mine, close acquaintances. They're people I know, people I know about their stories, their lives. And I requested if they could share their experience and just share how they overcame their own trials. And while I feel like that is beneficial in a way, I kind of gave it a thought and I said, it would be nice if I had somebody who could speak to the process, the emotional and the mental process of actually moving from one stage to another. And then when I saw your profile, I said, this is exactly what I want to share. And I was I was so excited when I reached out and I was waiting for your reply and I'm so excited that you accepted it. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me because you're exactly the person, the kind of person who has a podcast that I'd love to talk to. So yeah, great. That's very nice. So I'd like to know a little bit about yourself, where you're from and what do you currently do? Okay, so I live on the East Coast. I grew up in Detroit in the Midwest, and I have been an attorney for 
about, oh, I don't know how many years, maybe that will really date me. But I have done a variety of things in my life. I have one of the things that was really clear to me looking back on my life is that there was a time when I got really energized around women's issues. And that was in the 60s and 70s when I was in college. I always wanted to go to law school, but I wasn't quite sure why, because I didn't have any lawyers in my family. And at that time, there were not a lot of women who were lawyers. But I had decided that I wanted to do something good. I wanted to particularly work on women's issues, which were just coming into the public eye more. And slowly I got involved in the women's movement, but particularly around sexual assault and sexual assault cases. And although it wasn't identified then by these words, domestic violence, but there was beginning a movement of women starting to talk, as you have been doing with some of your podcast guests, about their lives and their stories. And to begin to realize the stories were the same, or there were some consistent things about it. Women who had never talked about being raped, women who didn't have a definition for what was going on in their marriage, where there was abuse and alcoholism, or that they had been abused as children and didn't have words for that. So as we began to move into the 70s and 80s, more and more people were talking and more and more conversations were going on and more and more services started to come together. And I was sort of there and I wanted to be a part of it. And that's really what drove me through law school and after law school to try to find ways to work on women's issues, sex discrimination. I worked uh, a lot on sexual harassment in the very beginning and eventually made my way into government because I thought there was a way in state government that you could make government, the public policy, really change things for women and, and for families and for men too, which is one of the things I've also been doing over the course of the years is started to work also with men who were arrested for uh, domestic violence. Well, that's very, very commendable. And that's a phenomenal background. I think it's so inspiring that you took the opportunity as you saw it at such a, at such a dynamic time. There was a lot of change over the 70s and 80s. I know that just by reading and, and listening to a lot of experiences from people. So that's amazing that you grabbed the opportunity then and, and dove headfirst into it. I'd like to go deeper into it, but before that, I just wanted to ask you, what made you accept my request to talk about everything today? I love the concept of bulletproof. That was just so interesting to me. And not just because it was a concept, but that you you recognized why it is that I do what I do. I mean, because there's a kind of resiliency that I think we don't understand. Women don't always give themselves credit for. And that I think I like to hear the story of how people went from here to the next place. And I'm fascinated with that. As a writer, I'm fascinated with stories and not just what happened to you, but how did you get out? And so I thought you got that and, and using that word, which is kind of a word that you don't always think about in, in terms of the kind of work that I do, because a lot of the women come in and they really, they know what happened to them and they know there's something else they want, that they believe that there's some way for them to keep moving, but they don't know how to get there. And I think that's what we're trying to articulate and learn from each other because we can be role models for each other. You know what? I could not have said it better myself. Thank you. You're spot on with that. That is exactly what I aim to do 
when I started the podcast, everything that went through my head when I even chose the name of Bulletproof Women, because I wanted to show the resilience that we all inherently have. And many women don't even recognize it themselves. But yes, you're absolutely right. And when I saw your work, I thought this is exactly what I want others to see, that there is a way forward. They might not be able to see it themselves, but there is a process that you can overcome everything. You don't have to just hide in the shadow or just accept it and and sit in your pain in your own head. You can move forward. There was a time when Susan felt she didn't know why she wanted to become a lawyer. But that didn't hold her back from using every tool in her possession as a lawyer to get things moving. In the 1970s, Susan founded a rape crisis centre. And in the early 1980s, she represented battered women in divorce proceedings. She also litigated sex discrimination cases and played an intricate role in helping to articulate the legal concept that made sexual harassment illegal in the 1990s. In the 1970s, you've had a very very phenomenal career and it expands quite a few decades. In the 90s, you actually moved into helping articulate legal concept and legal language that made sexual harassment illegal. Up until then, was sexual harassment actually viewed as sexual harassment is today or was that around the time when it was being recognized and you helped see it? Yeah, sexual harassment was interesting because it had been a phenomenon that had been going on for for decades historically. If you read Elcott, who wrote Little Women, actually wrote some stories about women in the workplace at the turn of the century. Some of the women were in mills or they were in sweatshops. There was always this concept that women had to give out or give in to men's sexual advances, but nobody was identified as a pattern in the law and there was no law against it. So what our work was, and I was in law school at the time, I was an intern at uh, a women's justice center in Michigan, and we were trying to show the courts that this pattern was sex discrimination under the law. But for being a woman, you would not be asked for those kinds of sexual favors or whatever. And sometimes there was actually sexual assault, which could have been under the criminal law, but we were trying to get employers to see it as a violation of the civil law, which is in in the United States, Title VII, which is the law that bans discrimination on the basis of sex. And it was a long period of time, almost 10, 15 years. And so I was involved in a couple of the briefs that were being written to the higher courts. Eventually, the Supreme Court, I think in 1984, finally began to articulate it. And then it was years after that, almost a decade of making it clear. And it's probably the clearest right now that it's been in terms of how women can proceed and what the employer is responsible for doing in terms of investigating a complaint and moving forward. But it was one of those things that a lot of women knew it was going on the same way that sexual assault in the criminal sense was going on in the 60s and 70s or even the 50s, and no one could articulate it in a way that the criminal courts would really take it seriously. So I think it was trying to get the courts to understand these are the lived experiences of women, and there should be somebody in some way that we could stop them and make employers more responsible for the actions. And I say today that employers have been doing a much better job and women have more protections under the law. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. 
Is there any particular incident that pushed you to be such an integral part of all these processes? Well, I have been doing this work for a number of years, as I just laid out, since somewhere in high school and moving into college and then going to law school. And I really didn't know why I was doing it. I had never had a personal experience with a sexual assault or domestic violence. I didn't witness that as a child. I wasn't abused as a child. So I really wasn't sure why I was doing this. I mean, not that I didn't want to do it, but it was kind of like, you know, sometimes in the middle of the night you go, why am I doing this? What, what is it that's propelling me and what will keep me propelled? Although the movement was certainly propelling itself and I wanted to be part of that. Just when Susan was beginning to really ask herself why she does what she does, tragedy struck. The injustices and crimes that Susan was working so hard to fight out in the world had finally reached her family door. A phone call in the middle of the night woke Susan once again to the shock and horror of another senseless act of violence. But this time, the victim was much closer to her. Maggie, Susan's 19-year-old niece. Maggie had been shot and killed by her ex-boyfriend in a college campus in Michigan. The realization that this violence had touched her family made Susan's work as an attorney and advocate for women's rights more personal and immediate. In the late 1990s, in October of 1999, my niece Maggie was killed. She was killed by her ex-boyfriend. She was a college student. She was uh, a sophomore in, in college, a very good college in the Midwest. And it was such a horrible experience. I, first of all, I, I guess I never imagined that this could happen in my family. Somehow my family was the other. Although I knew that domestic violence and sexual assault could happen anywhere any, any economic status, any race, color, creed, ethnicity, but I somehow I kept my family separate. And then secondly, that she was so young and no one knew she was in so much danger, including herself. And in all the horror of that and trying to figure out how did this happen? How did this happen? This is my brother's stepdaughter and I watched her grow up. But the thing was, is that you know, this, this was happening and I had to do something about it. But the part of me that was, was kind of able to cope with it was that suddenly I realized that everything I'd ever done in my life came to this moment. That the reason why I had been involved in sexual assault and sexual violence and domestic violence and, and I'd even done some work on campuses that I suddenly realized that everything had come to this and this was a time that I needed to do something about it. I didn't quite know what to do about it because it was such a violent, unexpected, senseless act. And it took a while for myself and my family to sort of unravel it as to how we were going to deal with it. Susan, in her own capacity and after years of dealing with the legal and justice system, wanted to spring into action and hold someone accountable. That may have served as some solace from this horrific crime, but unfortunately for her and her family, they didn't get that chance. He, he not only killed her, but he killed himself. And so there was not going to be a criminal trial there in my legal 
background. It's like, you know, somebody hurts somebody or kills somebody, then we're, we're going to take them to court and make sure that they don't hurt somebody else and they'll go to prison or whatever. That was gone. And maybe that was a good thing because that's a really hard process to go through. But I wanted some kind of revenge in the sense that, you know, I could feel like there was some movement forward here that this didn't happen. This, there was something good that would come out of it. I was kind of struggling with that, and I Googled the word revenge. I got the phrase, living well is the best revenge. And that's really what I wanted. I thought that, you know, he destroyed my niece. He was not going to destroy my family. He was not going to destroy me or my sense of going forward. So that's really what I, what I picked up on and decided there was something I could do that would not only help me to live well after this, that's the last thing he wanted, but help other women, because I have a lot of women who say to me, yeah, that's right. I want to live well. That's right. That's the last thing that he wants for me, because I want to show him that no matter what, I can move on. So that's really where it's my work from that kind of intellectual, other people's life story came into my life story. And then I had to make my choice. How was I going to move forward with my life? Shocked and outraged by the death of her niece, killed by an ex-boyfriend at the age of 19, before her life had barely blossomed, pushed Susan into immediate action. She vowed to help women take the journey from victim to survivor to thriver, as Maggie could not. These women had been virtually overlooked by society for so long. Through her own healing, after the untimely death of Maggie, Susan found the work she was born to do, and it came together in what she refers to as the Thriver Zone, a healing place for women who want to reclaim their lives after abuse. Thank you for sharing that. I know that this is what triggered you to begin the what you refer to as your Thriver Zone. Could you describe what is the Thriver Zone? So I got this idea that you said this earlier, but there are stages that we go through and we don't always articulate them. When I got the idea of living well is the best revenge, I started doing a workshop called My Avenging Angels. And in the process of putting together material for that workshop, I wanted to attract women who had gone through some kind of abuse and that wanted to start moving on. There's been so much tragedy in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years public tragedy, now we have COVID, that people go through these really difficult moments and horrible things that happen to them. And there is this process of moving on. Maggie never really identified as a victim. He had never physically assaulted her, except for the murder. And she didn't know he had a gun. So she never really identified as a victim. She would never be a survivor in this lifetime. And I thought myself and the other women I wanted to attract to the workshop, we wanted to do more than survive. And so I, I got the concept of thrive. At that time, this is in the early 2000s, no one was really using that word. More people are using it these days. And so I got this idea that that was the next step, that there was a critical next step after just surviving. And that's what the women were coming to me for at the workshop. They knew there was something else that this didn't seem right. They should be able to move on. They didn't know how to do that. So to me, Thriver means, well, I have a working definition. 
My definition of thriver is a happy, self-confident, and productive individual who believes she has a prosperous life ahead of her. She believes in herself and her future so much that she will not return to an abusive relationship or suffer the consequences of a sexual assault. She speaks knowledgeably and confidently about her experiences, and she's not stuck in her anger or need for revenge. Living well is her best revenge. And I think that's what I didn't want to do is get stuck in my anger and what happened to Maggie and how it happened and all the people that should have helped her and all the things that should have been there to help her but weren't. But I wanted to move on. And since Maggie couldn't do that, she was physically no longer here to move on, that I wanted to help women who could move on do that in her name. And that really is the heart of what I do. And it's also my own journey. I needed to also start to not just survive what happened to Maggie, but to thrive and to find something that would really identify the work that I would do in her honor. Even though violence against women is considered a human rights violation, it takes place every single day around the world. Globally, one in three women are likely to experience physical or sexual violence against them, mostly by an intimate partner. Sadly, the domestic violence and abuse are hidden by the social cultures and norms where signs of an abusive relationship are either unknown or ignored. In November 2000, a report was published on the prevalence, incidence, and consequences of violence against women, and a survey was conducted on the national violence against women in the United States. The survey highlighted how serious this issue really is. Violence against women has exploded in the past 20 years in the United States alone, particularly in the areas of intimate partner violence and sexual assault. Between the months of November 1995 to May 1996, the National Violence Against Women survey sampled both men and women. This was to provide comparable data on women's versus men's experiences with violent victimization. The results showed that women experience more intimate partner violence than men do. 22% of women versus 7% of men reported that they were physically assaulted by a current or former spouse, cohabiting partner, or a date in their lifetime. This study makes it clear that violence against women, particularly intimate partner violence, should be a major criminal justice concern. The large number of rape, physical assault, and victimizations committed against women each year strongly suggests that violence against women is endemic. Unfortunately, this situation is compounded and perpetuates around the world because the violence against women is mostly done by current and former intimate partners and many women just don't know how to get out. You spoke about tragedy and abuse victims because that's primarily all the victims uh, and all the situations that the women come to you where you need to help them. I feel like tragedy and abuse kind of go hand in hand they're different shades of each other. And women who suffer physical abuse 
are also victims of a tragedy that's happening to them because they're the piece of themselves are just broken down and their personalities are just stomped out consistently. So in that context, I feel like tragedy and abuse victims suffer a similar sort of pain in their life and a similar sort of situation where they feel like they're not in control of themselves and they're stuck as victims of their situation. So how do you help women prepare to take this journey from being stuck as a victim and get themselves unstuck? That was a really good question. And and the way I sort of constructed it was I developed these seven steps to thriving after abuse. And I define abuse very broadly. I do not have the women tell me their abuse stories when they come in. I make sure they're safe and they've got a counselor, they've got a therapist, whatever. But I don't have them tell me that part of their story. They've told it too many times. But the first thing I tried to get them to do, although we're talking about this journey, a lot of them don't know they're on a journey. When I put the words victim to survivor to thriver on the board and we start talking about what kind of emotions and what kind of thoughts they have in each of those stages, they look at me and say, no one ever told me I was on a journey. I've been a victim my whole life or I feel like a victim my whole life. And gosh, that's right. I want to be a thriver. Let's look at that. So that's the first step. And it seems kind of simple, but I was the same way initially. I I wanted to do more than survive what happened to Maggie, but I didn't have it conceptualized. So that's really important. For a little while after Maggie's death, Susan worked with a few offenders, specifically the men who were behind all the pain and trauma the women who came to her experienced. Susan felt that even though she was already part of the system where these men were brought to justice, she wanted to understand how they could do what they did to the women they victimized. I think what's interesting to me about that is after Maggie was killed, I decided I wanted to work with men. I wanted to work with offenders. Mm -hmm. I, I felt that even when I was doing legal aid years ago, that we need to deal with these men to get them away from one more woman. And I had guys in the groups who would literally tell me that. I took her apart piece by piece. I destroyed her self-esteem. And in that moment, at the time, they were proud of it. Afterwards, they could describe it as something terrible they did, but they knew exactly how to do that. And I don't know how men learn that, because not all men learn that, but some men, I don't know if it's socialization gone wild or something, but yeah, they know how to do that. And that is so destructive because a part of her is still holding that as some kind of truth even though she knows it's not true. He was so good at it. And then the other thing that's important is that in that stuckness you were talking about is that there's a feeling, and I'm not a clinical person, so I can't describe it from a psychological point of view, but there's a feeling that we have that every part of us has been destroyed by this, that there's nothing left of our resilience, our psyche, our, our reason to want to move on and to live. But I think there's a part of us that's been untouched. And so what I encourage the women to do and through a couple of exercises that I do with them to get them to find that place, the part of them that's been untouched by everything that's ever happened to them. Some people talk about that spirit or soul, the part of you that can't die. And if you're in a larger religious context, it might be the word divine, but usually through the way the abuser or the way this experience has affected us, there's this negative voice in our head that just keeps 
saying all this stuff, you know, you're to blame and you're, you're stupid and no one's going to love you. And why did you go there? And so to quiet that negative voice down, I have an exercise for that. And then to really start to connect to that part of you, it's been untouched. I call it the happy person inside. They like that. That's kind of fun. And they're kind of amazed that I think they've either been told or they sort of believe from their own experience that this person or the people that have hurt them over the years, who probably intended to make them feel really, really bad and destroy their self-esteem, that there is a part of them and bringing that part up and, and then taking that part and feeling that part and then setting a vision for the next step in their life, even if it's just a simple act of feeling better for five minutes a day or feeling happy for five minutes a day. But I definitely try to get them to look at long, longer term goals, go back, get back to work, go back to school. I had a woman in my group who wasn't singing when I met her because of the way her abuser dealt with her. And so she got to sing again. So just trying to find that something that starts to move you through. And then suddenly they're doing things that I couldn't even imagine. And they're calling me up and saying, I just, guess what I just did? <laughs> you know, I just bought a house or guess what I just did? But it's sort of beginning to repair and to find that they actually know this journey. They've seen other people do it. In fact, we have some of our favorite thrivers of people like Oprah and Maya Angelou, you know, who have articulated their experiences since their childhood and how they've moved through them. And Oprah, of course, is the, the queen of positive thinking and let's just get our life moving again. So there are role models for us, and, but then we become our own role model. And that journey then becomes much more articulated for themselves they in fact are starting to feed it back to me. And in fact, one of the last books that I just put out called Living in the Thriver Zone, I had seven of the women in my group, I interviewed them and they articulated for me how they felt when they first came into the workshop, what was some of the exercises that like I just talked about the quieting the inner critic and the happy person inside that really helped them and the steps that they've made and where they are today. And totally blew me away that they could be not only living that life, but actually that they're achieving more. They want more. They keep wanting more and they believe they can get there. So the journey is there. And I think our spirit can get oppressed and trounced on. And we forget that there's a part of us that is resilient and, and cannot die no matter what. That was very well said. In this journey that I think one of the things you said also I, I thought was really nice is you don't ask them to repeat their trauma back to you. So it's behind them and so they're just focused ahead. What do you think would be the hardest part of anyone on this journey? That once they are focused ahead, what are the kind of milestones or what would be the most difficult milestone for them to cross to actually start running on this road now? I think it really depends. One of the things I did with the workshop is that it's a two-day workshop and it's free. I'm now doing it virtually actually since with COVID. I decided that I wasn't just going to have a workshop. I was going to do some follow-up. So we actually have follow-up activities. We meet once a month. We're now doing it on Zoom. We have retreats. We've had other activities. So I get to see these women. Some have been with me for 15, 20 years. 
and then I've watched their kids grow up. So I think that in answer to your question, in observing this in my own personal experience, it's the women who keep their motivation going, who realize I need to do an inner critic exercise. That, that's my inner critic telling me I can't do that. That's not me. I have the capacity to do that. It's kind of reminding themselves. And I think the role modeling is really important. You know, we're all really interested. Oh, what's this person doing? Oh, what's she doing? Because what I do is a motivational model. It's trying to constantly figure out where you're stuck. Are you stuck because you haven't got enough positive energy today? Are you stuck because your desire isn't focused enough? It's kind of like all over the place. Are you stuck because there's this fear that shows up like, oh, you can't do that. You know, nobody said you could do that. Or you have a fear of rejection or a fear of, so I have part of my model is to show where you're stuck. Or maybe finally, you just don't remember how good it feels to be a thriver. <laughs> you got to remember that, you know, how does it feel to be a thriver? For me, I figured this out years later. Why did I go to law school? Remember I was saying in the beginning, I didn't know why I was doing this. I, my, my real you, the part of me that's been untouched, the thriver energy in me needs to do meaningful work. I need to be helping and healing others as I help and heal myself. So if my desire doesn't match that, that's why when I went to law school, I was pretty clear that I was not going to come out of law school and be a tax lawyer. Tax lawyers are really good people. They help people. But that wasn't my idea of what meaningful work was to me. So wherever you're stuck, positive energy, not having a good enough focused desire, if your fears are still coming at you, you know, I can't do it, I'm, I'm not smart enough, I'm not worthy enough, I don't deserve it, or you forgot the real you. So we try to break that down. For example, at some of my retreats, we really focus on that. Or the women come to me and say, I'm stuck here, where do you think I'm stuck? So I think people who are very resilient are better at knowing and keeping themselves motivated, but it's hard when you have that negative voice in your head that's probably been fed by every abuser you've ever been in contact with, and you've got to know that that's not real. That's just one voice in your head. Another voice in your head that's saying, yeah, you go for it, girl. Right. Yeah, I think what I understood from that was everybody goes through their own situation differently. And so everyone's journey milestones will actually be different or their hurdles will be different. So some people are able to do it themselves and some people do need a bit of a, a pick me up and guidance even to recognize that this is the hurdle that they're facing. I think um, it's also, it also helps to follow your passion. I mean, this is my passion. I didn't totally understand it for many, many years, but there's something that, you know, follow your passion. If it's singing or if it's writing or if it's painting, I often ask the women, what's something you're passionate about you haven't done for a long time? And they're suddenly like, I haven't painted, you know, and it may, they may not be the painter of the century, but something about that painting just starts to get them moving. You know, it gets the energy going, it, the creative, the independent, I'm okay energy. I always say to women, if you follow your passion, then a lot of the motivation will come. Or where you get stuck will no longer be stuck because you're being propelled by this great, you know, whoosh of energy. Like, oh, this is what I really want to do. Right. Do you feel like, or in your experience with other women who have been through this, 
is it once they pass this and they they realize that this is where they're gaining their energy from this is where they are able to build their momentum is that when they start feeling powerful and they're able to move past that the violence in their past i try to think about this journey as not a linear journey like it's not like you're a victim one day and the next day you know you start moving to survivor and then once you get to thriver I think you can go back a little bit. So Mm -hmm. there are times in my life, the anniversary of Maggie's death, I can go back to victim. You know, why did this happen? It's sort of the same thing with the stages of grief. You start with denial and then you go to anger and then you go, but you can go back to denial. So I, I try to say, yeah, I wish it was once you get there, you'll be okay, but you will get triggered back. And for some of the women, they get triggered back because they're still fighting a custody battle with their ex-partner and they have to go to court and suddenly they go back to that victim place again. So just knowing that those triggers and, and trying to, as you would say, bulletproof yourself to know that you can, you can manage that. You can do some grounding exercises or you can go through some affirmations in your head. I can do this. This is going to be okay. I'm the strong one here. And if you know that, if you know you're being triggered back, then you're not going to stay there for two years. You're only going to stay back there for two minutes. And that's the cool thing. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. I know that all this knowledge and experience that you've gained with working with so many women, you've put a lot of information out there in books and in series and in audiobooks, ebooks and everything. And you also mentioned that you have workshops that you run to help women. Could you give me a little information about your books and your audiobooks? Right. So I'm a writer. I've always been a writer. So I always come back to writing. After I did the workshop for a number of years, I realized that I could put this information into a workbook for survivors. So I've actually put out three workbooks in there. Enter the Thriver Zone is the first one, the seven steps to thriving. Staying in the Thriver Zone, which is that motivational model I just went through about where you're stuck. And then living in the Thriver Zone, as I mentioned, has a couple of more exercises and also this, the interviews with seven women talking about their experience to thriving. They're very easy to read. They're in simple formats. Survivors can use them and also people who work with survivors. All of them, all three, I think are now in eBooks almost. I've also written two novels. I wanted to write something about Maggie's story. I didn't want to go through all the, exactly what happened to her. So I decided to write it in fiction. So I have two novels. I have a third one coming out this year, hopefully. And they're loosely based on Maggie's story about a young woman who was killed and then the people around her and her her spirit sort of moving through victim to survivor to thriver. I think stories are good. People sometimes relate to stories a lot more than material that's uh, more narrative. So I've tried to do that. My first novel called Awaken, loosely based on Maggie's story, is now going to be in audiobooks. That's coming out soon. I'm very excited about that. And I've also been working more directly with programs around the country to bring my workshops into and, and license my workshops so they can actually start to do them. There's a real need in our in the domestic violence, sexual assault, and the violence against women movement to really put in place all those steps, not just the victim services, 
but the survivor and thriver services. So I have some material that I think would be helpful and I'm trying to get that out there in a variety of ways. Thank you for sharing all of that information. So as we come towards the end, I think my last question would be, what does being bulletproof mean to you? Well, you know, it's so interesting when you asked me that question and I thought about it and the thing that I immediately got, my niece Maggie was killed by bullets. She was killed by uh, a gun. And so that just kind of struck me for a moment. It's like, yeah, we need to bulletproof women, you know, literally. <laughs> but then when I thought about it, I have been doing this Thriver Zone work for a while. I have my website and thriverzone.com and I have social media and everything. And when I really think about what is it that I want to do is I see my work as prevention. I see that we can help prevent women. Maybe they've already been in a relationship that was bad or they've been sexually assaulted, but I think it's preventing them from going back. I have a number of women who are older in my workshops, in my group, and they'll talk about for their whole life this. So we need to begin to get women strong and confident and believing that they will not be manipulated, that they have all the ability that they ever could have imagined to go out and be successful. And I love it when I get women who are young in my group, like 20 something, because I'm thinking, oh, if I can get her at 20. So to me, that's what it means. And I, I hadn't thought about using that word until I met you, but I think that's really what I see it as. If I can get more women to understand that the worst thing that's happened to you it, it's true. I mean, I always measure the things in my life that are hard. You know, was it as hard as Maggie's death and getting through it? And I'm like, no. So I did that. I can do this. And I use that as my guidepost. And the women, I think, understand that now because they know that they can survive. And I always say to women, if you can leave a physically abusive relationship and deal with physical safety issues, God, you can do anything. Because all the other fears in your head are all just thoughts. And that's, we want women to have that capacity. And we do have the capacity. Sometimes we forget, sometimes it's been drummed out of us. But young women, you, you're going to go for it. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much once again for everything, for sharing all of that information and experience and insight into everything that women go through and how we can look towards moving forward and focus forward and what to expect on those uh, on these recovery journeys. And uh, yes, I look forward to staying in touch with you and uh, wishing you the very best in 2021 and with your books and your workshops. And I would definitely like to see if there's more I can do as well to promote your work. Great. I'd love to, I'd love to come up to Canada and do a workshop. That would be so much fun. That, that would be excellent. That really, really would. I would love to be part of something like that as well. All right. Thank you, Gwen. You, you have, you're in the thriver zone here. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Today, 20 years later, Susan's award-winning work has been an integral part in helping women recover from abuse and has been described by many as life-changing. If you'd like to reach out to Susan for guidance or assistance, you can reach out to her on her website, thriverzone.com, and via Facebook or Twitter, 
at Thriver Zone. Further contact information will be available in the description box of this episode. Thank you for listening to the Bulletproof Women podcast with me. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed this episode and found value in the message and information shared today. I would greatly appreciate your support of my podcast by subscribing and writing a review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, if you would like to contact me and submit your own story or be a guest on the show, you can reach me by visiting my website bulletproofwomen.ca or by sending an email to bulletproofwomenpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the next episode and Happy New Year once again. Bye for now. Stay safe, stay strong, and remember, you are bulletproof too.